This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Pre-Loved Podcast is a weekly interview show about rad vintage style with guests you'll want to go thrifting with. Pre-Loved Podcast host Emily Stokel chats with guests about their love for vintage and secondhand clothing, how they source creative inspiration, and the stories behind their favorite pieces. The conversations cover everything from running a vintage fashion business to sustainability and why we choose secondhand things first. Listen to Pre-Loved Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Eukera. We're recording on Tuesday, July 2nd. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, I am great. I was uh, looking up the podcast that you mentioned in the uh, beginning, pre-loved podcast, mm-hmm. and I was really excited because I was like, maybe Georgia Hardstark of My Favorite Murder will be one of the guests already because she is so into vintage clothing, but I think she's <laughs> not yet. So I just want to like throw that out there for Emily Stokel <laughs> try to try to get, I know that's a big get, but she should uh, go, go for it. It's like that self-help book where you just like throw something into the universe and then it will come back to you. What is that called? The Secret? That is called The Secret. And I use secreting as a verb. (laughs) (laughs) FYI. That's amazing. My friend Uh, and I are like, you're going to secret that? Great. I'm going to do some secreting. (laughs) I'm going to start doing that now and just secreting everything that I want to happen in the universe. That's amazing. Amazing. (laughs) So I have one... um, It's kind of a throwback piece of follow-up, I guess, maybe. Um, So at the beginning of the year in January, we did a uh, show about the Arctic and the tropics. Uh, And during the Arctic segment, I talked about John Krakauer's Into Thin Air, uh, which is a 1997 book about an incredibly dangerous season on Mount Everest and one particular uh, mission, which was uh, or one particular climb, which I think was the deadliest at the time. And the reason I'm bringing that back up is because uh, John Oliver, uh, and there's been some other news stories about it, but John Oliver is the one I saw, um, did a segment about climbing Mount Everest and how um, the expedition industry has devalued a once historic achievement, um, which is basically about how people paying to climb Mount Everest ha- are getting injured or killed and they are polluting the mountain and they are endangering the guides and other people that are participating. And so it's about the expedition industry, which was at the center of Into Thin Air back in 1997, which is more than 20 years ago. Um, so that kind of that trend, which he was reporting on initially, is, has continued and is now becoming even more of a problem. Um, the the part, other part that I thought was super interesting is that there are two sides to the mountain. On one side, it's pretty regulated, and so most people can't. But on a, the Nepal side, which is also slightly easier to climb, I think, um, there are quote, no limits on climbing permits. You just have to pay eleven thousand an $11,000 fee and then provide a doctor's note that deems yourself physically fit. And so a lot of people who like otherwise maybe wouldn't be fit enough or at least fit enough to climb a mountain, which is not to say that they're not fit at all, are, are doing that. And so anyway, I just thought it was really interesting that 
the Mount Everest issue is coming kind of back again at full circle. And that if you want to get like the very initial kind of start of the expedition industry and all of that um, into thin air by John Krakauer, uh, which is a book I love and is amazing on audiobook, um, might be something to pick up. So that's my my piece of follow up about the Arctic and mountain climbing. That's really good. And now I am angry there was never an X-Files episode that talked like that was about like a Yeti or something in <laughs> like on the mountain and like showed the, you know, like the hubris of these like corporate whatever people who were like trying to climb the mountain. And then it's like, you didn't respect the mountain. And then the Yeti kills them. That feels <laughs> like it would have happened. Right. Like that seems like they would fit. You should secret that too and see if we can get a reboot. We're not, we did, we had a reboot. It wasn't good, but, no. <laughs> but it would be if they did this idea. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we want to pause. Thank you so much for listening to For Real, the nonfiction books podcast, and ask that if you like what you hear, that you share the podcast on your own social media with your friends, family, or even nemeses. You know, anyone if you're like, you know what? I know that it is my nemesis, but I also know that they really like nonfiction and I would like to share that with them because uh, I was actually just reading this. This is a biblical reference, but it says that if you are kind to your enemies, you will be heaping burning coals on their head. So with that in mind, share for real on social media. And if you shout us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever you like, uh, tag us at Book Riot so that we can thank you, which uh, we will. We love hearing from our listeners and uh, appreciate your support so much and spreading the word about For Real. Again, tag at Book Riot. And now back to the show. Excellent. I appreciated the biblical reference you threw in there. Nice job. <laughs> so we are going to start off the podcast as we usually do with our first segment, which is new books. Uh, and these are books that are out recently, coming out soon, that we have either read or previewed or are just really excited about because they have a lot of buzz and interest. So um, I'm going to go first. And uh, my first pick is one that came out on June 18th. It's called Broken Places and Outer Spaces, Finding Creativity in the Unexpected by Nidhi Okorafor. Um, and so she is a Nigerian-American writer who traditionally, or I guess not traditionally, um, who has in the past, like I know her best from her fantasy and science fiction writing for both kids and adults. She's written some teen um, series, YA series that are fantasy, sci-fi related, um, that are, are well regarded. Um, but this is a um, sort of a memoir of sorts. It's a pretty short book, um, and it's about how creativity um, can be connected to kind of the broken or difficult or challenged parts of ourselves. So um, the premise of it is that as a teenager, she had severe scoliosis. And so she was living in Chicago and um, her parents took her in for a spinal fusion surgery to correct her scoliosis. And this is a surgery that at the time had a 1% chance of paralysis. But she was a high school track and tennis star. Um, they just didn't see that that was going to be a risk because it's really not. Um, but something went wrong during surgery. And so she woke up and she couldn't move her legs. Um, and because she had been a person who was an athlete and now basically relearned to walk again, um, it took a really big blow to her sense of self. And so um, as she was recovering in the hospital, she starts to write about some of the kind of weird visions and dreams she was having. Um, and this experience kind of helped shift her focus away from her previous interest in science towards creative writing as a potential kind of career and place that she could go. So um, the book is, uh, again, it's a pretty slim book, but it is a manifesto about how what we perceive as limitations have the potential to become our greatest strengths. And so she 
also writes about uh, growing up in Chicago, about visiting Nigeria, where her parents are from, um, and also other artists who have overcome or pushed through certain limitations or different kinds of limitations to continue their creative work. So it's about our connections between creativity and the ways in which we're limited and how those things can actually become strengths. And I have I've been reading this one in little bits and pieces, and it's really it's really good. She's such a vivid and just a really vivid writer. And so like you get a very clear sense of like what she was experiencing when she woke up from surgery and couldn't feel her legs anymore and how shocking that was, but also like how much she is, she wants to kind of beat this thing. Um, it's just, it's really, really good. It gives you such a good, interesting um, perspective on that, that I, I really have enjoyed it quite a bit. So that is Broken Places and Outer Spaces, Finding Creativity in the Unexpected by Nidhi Okora for. I don't know why, but while you were describing that, I was just thinking, like, getting like super sentimental and like saccharine in my heart about how, you know, books are like these little windows into all these other people's lives that mm-hmm. you get to like see. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, they're so great. Anyway, um, okay. With yeah. that, yeah, I mean, no, right? Like, let's just pause and just <laughs> reflect on the <laughs> awesomeness of books. Okay. So um, my first pick for this week is Reading Behind Bars, a memoir of literature, law, and life as a prison librarian by Jill Grunenwald. It's out July 2nd from Skyhorse. Um, I am really enjoying this and I wasn't sure how I would feel going in. But basically, Jill Grunenwald, when she was in her 20s in 2008, right? So right when the recession was hitting, she had her master's degree in library science or her MLIS, as people in the know say. And um, she was like, great, I'm going to be a librarian. But there were no jobs. She was living in Ohio. So she finally gets a job, but it is at a men's minimum security prison as the prison librarian. So she has, you know, like some library knowledge, not a ton of experience, like some experience. Like she's been working um, in various library jobs since like college, but she just doesn't know all of the ins and outs yet. And then she gets put into this position, which is like a little stressful, you know, and a little bit like you don't know what to expect. But um, she works for, uh, I think, like a little less than two years in this library. So she basically like talks you through like when she arrives at the prison and what the situation was like and how she was feeling. And you just get a very places you like sort of in the moment kind of thing. And she talks about the different prisoners that she interacted with or inmates or I'm, I don't remember how she refers to them in the book. I'm assuming inmates and um, the other guards and like how like some people like the previous librarian had gotten fired because she was in a relationship with one of the inmates. And that was like discovered, which, you know, shocking scandal and um she talks about how like like libraries everywhere there are some things that are just the same like no matter where a library is there are certain commonalities that they will all have and um i found that really kind of sweet and reassuring and just how the library was a place for you know people to uh metaphorically escape um, being in this prison and, you know, having access to information outside of the prison and all of this stuff. So I'm, I'm not finished with it yet, but I'm really enjoying it again. So that is Reading Behind Bars, a memoir of literature, law, and life as a prison librarian by Jill Grunenwald. Oh, that sounds really good. Um, is there anything about it in like, I don't know, I'm, I'm imagining like a book club. Is there anything about like books that she like recommended or the prisoners were asking about? Or is it more like about the logistics of prison librarianship? Oh, she said they were all reading. Um, he's published by Little Brown. He's like a thriller or something like that author. 
Do you know what I'm talking? He has like a million. He has like a children's series now. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, I don't read those kinds of books because I read nonfiction. It's not. It's not a slight. Yeah. They probably are awesome. But anyway, that kind of thing, like John Clancy, not him, but that type of oh, book, like was really okay. big. And then um, newspapers were like super popular, <laughs> unsurprisingly, because it's like that. It's how you can get a lot of your news aside from TV. Sure. Um, they didn't have a lot of access to the internet, and especially because of budget cuts at prisons. And we don't have to go down the the prison road, but um, yeah. So it's it's important to have libraries in prisons. Interesting. Cool. Good pick. So my second pick came out June 25th and is called The Patient Assassin, a true tale of massacre, revenge, and India's quest for independence by Anita Anand. Um, and I'm just going to read a little bit off the back of the book because the blurb, it, like the sentence, the one sentence description they have is so good, like I can't do any better than it. Um, and so the, it is uh, the dramatic true story of a celebrated young survivor of a 1919 British massacre in India and his ferocious 20-year campaign of revenge that made him a hero to hundreds of millions and spawned a classic legend. And that's just like such a good sentence. I really love it. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. Sorry not to sound like a dweeb, but that was really good. <laughs> That's good, right? All right. So the the precipitating event of this book is April 1919, when uh, British officers uh, marched into a walled garden in India where citizens were gathering to protest and then opened fire. They killed more than a thousand unarmed men, women, and children in this uh, garden. The one of the victim injured victims in the massacre was a man named Udam Singh, who is an 18 year old orphan, um, and who legend has it like arose from the kind of bloody ground and vowed to kill the men responsible for the attack. So 20 years later, in March 1940, he arrived in London and murdered, assassinated a man called Sir Michael O'Dwyer, who uh, back in 1919 was the lieutenant governor of Punjab and the man who was responsible for ordering the British soldiers to open fire on the crowd and kill everyone. That's kind of the the bare bones of the story, but it tur- as it often turns out in historical stories like this, like the truth of it is a lot more complicated than people have thought and the legend that um, Udam Singh uh, that follows him is actually a lot more complicated than that. And so in the book, Anand traces his journey through Africa, the United States, and Europe um, from India. So how, how he got from India all the way to Europe and then Britain to the point of assassination 20 years later. Um, and also brings to light this 1919 massacre in India, which is a really like truly shameful historical moment that hasn't gotten as much attention as it ought to. So it's a whole kind of story of the this the history of India, the history of British occupation in India. Um, and all of that kind of stuff pulled together in this one kind of true story of murder and revenge. And it is it is really good so far. Just like the history of the British in India is something that I don't know as much about as I ought to. And so I'm getting kind of a good overview of that, um, of what life was like in India at the time. And then I think just this sort of like revenge plot is going to get really exciting the more it gets into it. So um, really kind of interesting. And I really like the title too, The Patient Assassin. Um, At first, I was thinking patient like medical patient, but then no, it's like a person who is willing to wait. Um, and so the idea that it took kind of 20 years to really like follow through on this, I think is kind of interesting. So I really love that kind of aspect of it too. Um, so the book is The Patient Assassin, A True, True Tale of Massacre Revenge and India's Quest for Independence by Anita Anand. That sounds so good. Like not to go back again to like the X-Files, but I feel <laughs> like 
there have been stories in that and definitely in Supernatural where you would have, it's always like, you know, a, like suddenly people start getting murdered and then the people investigating are like, oh, the people are all like linked by this thing that happened 20 years mm-hmm. ago. And mm-hmm. then like, you know, a Supernatural ghost or whatever, like killing people. But in this case, it's a really patient assassin, <laughs> like the title. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds so great. Okay. Anyway, speaking of people killing people, my next pick um, is American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century by Maureen Callahan. It's out July 2nd from Viking. Um, This is about Israel Keys. And if you're going, oh, then you're a true crime person because you'll have heard of Israel Keys. But most of America, I'm assuming, has not. Kim, have you heard of Israel Keys? I have not. This is totally new to me. Uh, he was caught in 2012, I believe. And so it's like he's pretty recent. But, you know, ever a lot of people have heard of like Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy and, you know, like um, the Night Stalker and all these people. But Israel Keys, what he would do, he was like this construction worker, I think. So he would basically go around the country. He would like fly somewhere. He'd rent a car. He'd drive somewhere else. He would have, on a previous trip, buried a kill kit. Then he would pick victims and, like, kill them and then drive back to the airport, like, in another state and fly home. So, basically, there was almost no way of catching him. Like, how, like, you know, how do you, how do you do that? Um, The fact that he was caught because he made basically, like, a stupid mistake, which I think is the only way that it could have happened. So, this is why he's called, in the title, the most meticulous serial killer, because he extremely carefully planned almost all of his murders and like we never actually find like find out the extent of his killing because he was like a total jerk let's say (laughs) to the very end um but if you want to get like details about it maureen callahan has been researching it for like six years ever since he was caught um then i would check out this book again he's not that well known but uh he is uh terrible so that is American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century by Maureen Callahan. Oh, my gosh. That sounds terrifying. I was just making like a shocked face the whole time you were talking because good grief. Ooh. Did they ever like maybe you're not at that far in the book yet, but like why? Like, why did he do this? Um, I don't think I mean, to my memory of the case, I don't think he explains it. Like when they caught him, he was just like his confessional tapes i think are called infuriating by law enforcement like he's just the only person he cares about is his daughter and he's basically like don't release my name because it'll like and i guess that's i don't even want to say laudable because like no you're like a monster so anyway whatever that guy sucks oh that one sounds too scary i probably can't read that but i'm glad you mentioned it because we do like some true crime All right, so my uh, third pick is out July 9th, so it'll be out the day this podcast drops, and it's called Three Women by Lisa Lisa Tadeo. And it's just called Three Women. It doesn't have a subtitle, which I think is kind of fascinating given our, like, deep love of subtitles. And this is also a book that it seems to me has gotten a lot of buzz, um, but maybe it's just, like, in my world of nonfiction, I'm not really sure. But anyway, Three Women, Lisa Tadeo, is a riveting true story about the sex lives of three real American women based on nearly a decade of reporting. And that is a quote from the book jacket. Um, so over about uh, eight to 10 years, uh, this journalist, the author, embedded with women around the country to try and understand female desire. So the three women at the center of the story that she kind of profiles throughout it are a woman named Lena, who is a homework homemaker and a mother of two in Indiana, who has kind of 
of lost passion in her marriage, but then um, for in various ways embarks on an affair after she reconnects with an old flame over social media. And so it's about that story. Um, the second story is about Maggie, who is a 17-year-old high school student who had an affair with her married English teacher. Um, her English teacher ends the affair and then a few years later is named the North Dakota Teacher of the Year. Uh, and after that happens, Maggie comes forward and um, there is a trial and um, became very complicated because they they have broken up at this point or whatever. Um, and then the third person is a woman named Sloan, who is a gorgeous, successful, and refined restaurant owner. That's in quotes. Um, she is married to a man who likes to watch her have sex with other men and women. And so it's about that relationship and what that is about. And so um, the whole book is just kind of an exploration of female desire and um across the United States in different areas and exposing the different ways that we do and do not talk about female desire. Um, I do not think, Alice, this is a book that you would like because you've mentioned before that you don't like books where the author sort of like fills in details and like kind of implies what the reader is thinking and feeling and that's too narrative-y. And this one is very narrative. Like she um, kind of takes different perspectives and tries to like really get inside these women's heads, um, which I have found really fascinating, but I think maybe will not work for some other readers. Um, but uh, I think it's super interesting. And I think it's a topic that is worth reading and writing about. So um, I'm glad it's there and I'm, I'm excited to keep going with it. So that is Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. You can't just make up stuff. It's nonfiction. <laughs> I don't think it's made up though, but it's more like, like the first chapter about Maggie sort of like has this whole thing about like, you do this and you do that and you see this. And I know that it's based on like what Maggie has told her and the time she's been interviewing her and stuff. But the style of that, I think you would just not really enjoy. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, Is, is the book, I know you said that one woman would have sex with men and women. Is it pretty dominated by like straightness though? Just to like clarify for readers. Yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think all three of them, besides uh, the two of them, I think, yeah, are both straight. And then um, the Sloan one, she is in a heterosexual relationship um, with her husband. So perhaps bisexual, but I, I haven't read enough to know for sure like what they would call that or what they and the people in the book would ex- – how the people in the book would explain their sexuality. No, for sure. Okay. Just interested. So my – Next and final new pick is Outspoken, Why Women's Voices Get Silenced and How to Set Them Free by Veronica Rukert, South July 2nd from Harper Business. She starts off the book talking about The Little Mermaid, which I really enjoyed, and talking about how what bothered her watching it as she got older was not only that Ariel gives up her voice, which was her most prized thing, um, but, you know, because everyone is like, oh, Ariel has such a beautiful voice, blah, blah, blah. Um, but also that she does it willingly, <laughs> which I was like, that's an interesting point, right? That she's like, is like, okay, sure, mm-hmm. I'll do this. She talks about that and then about how women today, right, are still, even though, you know, we've, we've come so far, um, but we still have a problem in terms of, um, speaking up, being heard. We're told very much through both explicit and implicit means to, uh, minimize ourselves. And this is, you know, both in terms of our physicality and um, in terms of of how loudly we speak. So there's just a lot of reinforcement about, right, like, hey, you know, you're being too loud, you're being shrill, like all of these words that people use to try to make women be quieter. Um, She also talks about working with um, groups of people and having them, she talks about like manspreading, 
Because it's all about, right, like taking mm-hmm. up space like, with your body and stuff since your voice is part of your body. And so she would have like sets of two, like one of them would like manspread slash take up as much space as possible. And the other one would, she called it pretzel, which she said women do, which is where you cross your legs and you fold your arms in front of you. Mm-hmm. Right. So she had them sit like that and then be like, have like a conversation and then be like, okay, so, you know, how, what did you feel about the conversation, et cetera? And the person who was being really expansive was like, oh, I felt like I could talk more and, you know, <laughs> like, like I was, could be like taken more seriously or like air my opinions. And the person who uh, was doing this like pretzel thing was saying that they noticed that they were speaking more quietly and they weren't talking as often and like all this stuff. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating. Um, because it is, again, I, I think that in some ways, even though we technically know that we have a long way to go in terms of uh, gender equality, I think that um, we don't always realize uh, or we think that despite knowing this, we think that like, oh, no, things are pretty they're pretty like equal or whatever. But even something like, you know, sitting on a bus, it's like how much room are you willing to take up? And mm-hmm. this like means so much. So anyway, I she's a former opera singer. I disagree with some of her breathing exercises, but that's like a weird like opera singer studio (laughs) thing. I know. I know. So she like does this stuff with like belly breathing and like I'm not saying you shouldn't breathe from, you know, like the bottom basically of your body. But um, okay. so read the book. I think it's really good. I think it's really important to think about this kind of thing. And for she has a lot of like helpful ideas on how you can try to, you know, like claim your voice more and how it's, you know, this um, part of you that is different from everyone else's, you know, like people's voices are very unique. And um, she just really leans into that and encourages you to. And I think that's an awesome message. Um, Again, with the exercises, I would take those with a grain of salt, but it's a great book. Okay. So again, Outspoken, Why Women's Voices Get Silenced and How to Set Them Free by Veronica Rukert. Excellent. I love a good like feminist book that uses data to talk about how women need to like do more and that the patriarchy is bad. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> All right. So that is what we have for uh, new books this week, which is very exciting. Um, so now we're going to shift gears into our second uh, segment, which is usually something topical. Um, this week we were kind of struggling to find like, I know it's right around July 4th, but we did Independence Day and stuff last year. And so we were trying to figure out something else to do for beginning of July. Um, and it ended up going with young adult nonfiction because I feel like I anyway was in the mood for something like that. Um, and so Alice agreed to do another YA nonfiction segment, which we did last year sometime. I don't remember when. So yeah, we're going to talk some YA nonfiction picks, which are don't really have anything else in common except that they're YA nonfiction. But should be some interesting books anyway. So um, Alice, I'll let you go first. Uh, Well, first of all, I was extremely surprised with this subject to be much more interested in it than I originally thought I would be when I started doing research on it and then checking out if the books were on um, Libby, which is, you know, like the app you can use for library Mm -hmm. downloads um, on your phone. I, uh, I, a lot of them were, and I started reading them and I was like, these are really good. I'm really glad that we are like doing this this week. So I again, am like exposed to these. So with that in mind, um, my first pick is Chasing Lincoln's Killer by James L. Swanson. This is basically the YA version, um, as far as I can tell, of his book Manhunt, The 12 Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer, which was a New York Times bestseller. 
Um, I've been doing it on audiobook, which I never, ever do audiobooks. And I'm a little bit, I know I need to fix that thing of like, an audiobook isn't really reading a book because that's a terrible opinion to have. But I I know I slightly have it about myself. I don't have it about other people doing it. But I've been doing it on audiobook. The audiobook is great. And really enjoying it. Basically, I just was in DC and I went to Ford's Theater and I was like, oh, I really want to read now about, you know, the whole assassination um, and the attempted assassinations of the Secretary of State and the Vice President. And this is a really good because it's pretty short. I think it's like 180, 90 pages, like not on audiobook Um, because it's pretty short. It just gives you like the sort of like most interesting facts and then <laughs> moves you along to the next like, you know, because he follows the three threads of Lincoln Seward, I think was the Secretary of State and then Johnson, the Vice President and then what was happening with John Wilkes Booth. So um, I'm really liking it. Again, audiobook, but you know, you can read it of Chasing Lincoln's Killer by James L. Swanson. That sounds good. Now I'm thinking we should have done YA versions of adult nonfiction, because there's a lot of those, like YA adaptations of adult nonfiction books. Like we could have done a whole segment on just those instead of just YA nonfiction generally, but another time. Another time. My first pick is uh, We Say Never Again, reporting by the Parkland Student Journalists, which is a book edited by their journalism and TV production teachers, Melissa Falkowski and Eric Garner. Um, So this is a collection of essays and pieces that look at the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland and the fight for gun control, um, as told by the student reporters of the newspaper and TV station or TV production classes. So um, it is a lot of different short essays about um, the students' experiences on the day of the shooting, um, their thoughts and experiences about around the media and coverage of the Parkland shooting um, and the aftermath and their kind of activism. Um, And then there's the section at the end about kind of their pieces of advice for other journalists and activist teens. Um, And so it's really interesting. Like some of the pieces come directly from their reporting um, of the newspapers and TV documentary stuff that they put together after the shooting. There are some profiles of extraordinary acts from the day of the shooting, which I think are pieces from their newspaper. And then a lot of it is um, essays just talking about different parts of their experiences. So the reason this one got my attention is because I read Parkland by Dave Colin earlier this year and just thought it was an incredible piece of reporting. And so I liked this book as kind of a companion to that. It gives a, comp- a, a different perspective, although Parkland, Dave Collins' book is about the students and it is about their responses and activism. It's really interesting to hear from the students directly and kind of in their own voices. It's a little bit scattershot, I would say. Um, you know, I, I kind of read it straight through in a few sittings and I kind of wish I had spread it out a little bit because I think the pieces when they kind of go right after another get a little bit repetitive. But um, I really like appreciated the students and their kind of candor and openness writing about trauma and guilt and recovery and um, just their experiences of being in a school shooting. Like it's very moving and it's very hard to read and they are very articulate and expressive and and good at writing so that um, it's incredible to just like, read those firsthand accounts from them. So um, an interesting book, one that I think is good picked up and in bits and pieces, perhaps. So that is We Say Never Again, reporting by the Parkland Student Journalists, which is edited by Melissa Falkowski and Eric Garner. Um, another example of 
when you shouldn't just like dive right through a book is you know, I was just reminded when you were talking about that. When I was 19, mm-hmm. I was like, I will read this entire book of Edna St. Vincent Millay poems. You just shouldn't do that <laughs> all at once because <laughs> you end up, it's like, I think it's the same with this, right? Because on their on their own, I'm sure each essay is like, oh, wow, like that was, you know, like stirring mm-hmm. or like whatever, you know. But when you read them one after the other, you're like, okay. And with Edna St. Vincent Millay, when I read all of her poems in this book at one time, I was like, okay, we get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I understand what your main points are. But anyway. I'm sure that it's not that blunt with the uh, book about the Parkland students. Good Lord. Those kids are amazing. They're amazing. Right. Yeah. So, okay. My next pick is Roses and Radicals, the epic story of how American women won the right to vote by Susan. I'm going to say Zimet. It's Z-I-M-E-T. Anyway, so this starts with, uh, I mean, it, it ostensibly kind of, you know, starts with the 18th century, but it really goes to Elizabeth Cady Stanton attending this um, anti-slavery convention in England, not being allowed on stage or to speak. None of the women were, which was dumb. And um, she says, uh, or Elizabeth Cady Stanton said in her memoirs that she and Lucretia Mott, other famed American woman suffragist, was, uh, they decided that they would hold a convention in the United States. And this became the Seneca Falls Convention. So this is kind of the typical place to start the story of women's rights in um as a movement in America and uh because again this book is technically for um ages 10 and up. So I don't think that she's really trying to break a lot of new ground with this book, but I did find it to be a really good overview of a lot of women involved. It's not a lot of women of color, so that would be another caveat that I would give for the book. She does touch on um, Stanton and Anthony's uh, racism. She talks about uh, Frederick Douglass and his immense support for women's suffrage. That man was amazing. And um, who else she talked about? Ida B. Wells comes up for sure because, you know, of her whole like not being allowed to march and then marching anyway in the suffrage parade. So she t- like she touches on people of color, but she doesn't go into it that much. And there is actually a lot more possible in that. So we'll say that. But in terms of being like, here are some of the major players from the 19th century until like 1920. Here's the overall story of how we got the vote. I think it's really good. Again, that is Roses and Radicals, the epic story of how American women won the right to vote by Susan Zemet. Interesting. I'm glad you talked about that one. And I was going to ask you, like, given your extensive reading about this topic, like how well did she do in kind of covering it for a, a tween audience, maybe. Um, so I'm glad it it gets at that even with some limitations. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I like. That's how I would sum it up. But like it gets at the overall story. It's got some problem areas. But again, it's it's difficult to cover everything when you're trying to be like broad strokes. Yeah, for sure. So my next pick is one that um, after we put the podcast list together, I realized Alice had already talked about this one in a previous episode, but um, I'm going to re-up it because I read it and it's great. Um, and the book is A Thousand Sisters, The Heroic Air Women of the Soviet Union in World War II by Elizabeth Wien. Um, and so this is a book about the Russian um, women female pilots. Um, so uh, early in World War II, Joseph Stalin issued an order that made uh, – the Soviet Union, the first country that would allow female pilots to fly in combat. Um, and so uh, they had to put together a female uh, regiment of fighter pilots. And so they, the um, 
women of the 580th Night Bomber Regiment, which were nicknamed uh, the Night Witches, which is amazing. They came together to fight in World War II. So uh, the book is about, starts with kind of how they came together. It starts with information about the woman who led the entire regiment, a woman named Marina Raskova, who eventually becomes like a legend in Russia and, and is well-loved across the country for all of the things that she did. So it, it talks about them fighting to actually become part of this unit, the the training that they went through, and then their experiences actually fighting in combat. And many of them uh, were killed because uh, of flying in combat was extremely dangerous at the time, fighting the Germans on the front between on the uh, side of Russia. So there are three regiments within the 588th um, they were deployed on the front lines as navigators, pilots, and mechanics, and there were a thousand of them that came together to um, to do that. Uh, and it's it's such a good book. It's got a lot of uh, photographs, which I really like. Um, got some of these sidebars talking about different aspects of uh, training or. Um, you know, just, you know, extra information that you might have. Um, and it has some, you know, the voices of these women into it and, you know, has really like a clear um, structure and focus. And um, I just think it's super interesting. Um, I probably, I'm not interested enough in World War II history to read an adult nonfiction version of this book, I don't think, but as a YA version, like it's great. And I, you can tell that she's kind of showing a lot of these women were teenagers, like they were not old. Um, but like taking on this incredible, scary um, experience. And it's, it's, it's really good. So uh, that is A Thousand Sisters, The Heroic Air Women of the Soviet Union in World War II by Elizabeth Wien. I love Elizabeth Wien and her mm-hmm. middle grade fiction, YA. I don't really know where that falls. Yeah. She wrote Codename Verity, which now I want to, I have on my shelf and I just haven't read. So I want to, I want to read that now too. Oh my gosh, Kim, you're going to cry, but it's worth it. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> it's so good. Okay. Anyway, um, I actually was going to ask, did you watch the Drunk History episode about Eleanor Roosevelt and Lyudmila Pavlichenko? No. She was like this amazing like Soviet sniper and she became friends with Eleanor Roosevelt. And it's so, it's so good. It's such a good segment. It's told by Paget Brewster, who always knocks it out of the park. Ooh. Well, now I got to go find that. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of follow-up from this episode for next time. Right. Anyway, my final pick for YA nonfiction is, um, and again, I feel like the line is blurred for me sometimes for middle grade and YA for in the, in the nonfiction area. Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. So we're just going to, it's going to be like a whatever between that. But uh, my choice is Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. This book is amazing. It's, um, it won the National Book Award. It's a Newbery Honor book. It's Jacqueline Woodson's uh, talk. It's like her memoir of talking about what it was like to grow up as an African American in the 1960s and 70s, living with these, you know, remnants of like Jim Crow and her growing awareness of the civil rights movement. She tells it through poems, and they're so good. Like I just feel overwhelmed talking about it. It's it's one of the you know like sometimes a book will win a bunch of awards, and you're like, I don't really get it, but okay. Like <laughs> this book is awesome. And um, I that's why at the beginning I was like, I'm so glad that we had this as a topic, like why in nonfiction, because it led me to these awesome books. And this is definitely the main one. Um, this is it's just it's so good. Everyone read it. It's uh, probably available on Libby because that's where I got it. Um, and just you're just going to be like, wow, what people can do in the realm of nonfiction and with books and when talking about their own stories and also 
history and humanity on the greater <laughs> level. Okay. Anyway, again, Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. You should read it. Excellent. I'm so glad you talked about that one and that you love it. Now I want to go check it out from the library right now. And that seems like a perfectly wonderful place to to wrap up that segment with a book that is awesome. So excellent. So we will um, close out the podcast as we usually do uh, by talking about the books that we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. So uh, Alice, I'm going to let you go first again. Oh, sure. Um, I picked up Love Thy Neighbor, A Muslim Doctor's Struggle for Home in Rural America by Ayaz Virji. Um, he is a Muslim doctor living in Minnesota in a, a small town. I think it's Dawson, Minnesota. And he mm-hmm. um, is basically talking about how he wanted to not be at this like, you know, cold, unfeeling hospital in like a larger city, but he wanted this like small town experience for him and his family. And then, you know, what it was like, um, they're basically their start. He ended up like giving, he gives this whole like lecture in front of um, a group of people in like uh, the school gym talking about what it basically trying to like foster relations between like Muslims and Christians and like clear up some misconceptions. And the talk is like, even though everyone's very nice to him in the town, the talk is like protested and all this. And it's just like, he writes it with a co-author, but it's like, it's really well written and really, really compelling. And, um, just this great sort of, again, we're talking about like books being like windows into people's lives. And this is definitely one of those examples. I'm just really loving it. Interesting. I started reading that one and I did not love it as much as you seem to be. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad. I just, I was struggling with the, so the way it's it's structured, he gives, it's sort of like part of his lecture that he gives and then it goes and it tells some background story and then it goes back to the lecture. And I really like the background story parts of it, but I was finding the lecture sections really disjointed. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being grumpy about it. But No, I totally know what you mean. And one of my least favorite memoir like devices is when people are like, I was standing up here, you know, at the culmination of my life. And as I stood there, my life flashed before my <laughs> eyes. And I thought back to what brought me there when I was four years old. And I was like, oh my gosh. I think honestly, if you're reading a book like that, skip that section and just go to the actual memory because that's they're just trying to get to the memory. Mm-hmm. So that's the important part. Yeah. So I'm, I'll be curious to hear like as you finish it because I started it and then decided that wasn't working for me, but I'm I'm glad you liked it. So I am getting ready to go away for the 4th of July. We're recording on July 2nd. So I'm leaving tomorrow to go up to my parents' house at the lake. Um, And so I have this like giant stack of books to bring with me, but they're mostly uh, fiction because that's what I've been in the mood for. Um, But I do have two memoirs on the pile that I have talked about before that I just like haven't finished yet that I am I'm going to finish while I'm up at the lake. Uh, so the first one is Rough Magic by Laura Palmer, which is a memoir about competing in the Mongol Derby, which is a horse race uh, on wild ponies through the wilds of Mongolia. Um, and Laura Palmer became, um, I think, the youngest person to ever win that race. So Rough Magic is that memoir. And the second one is Leaving the Witness by Amber Scora, which is a memoir about a Jew. Jehovah's Witness who is preaching in China and then kind of becomes disillusioned, decides to leave the witness and leave Jehovah's Witnesses and then is kind of cast out and what that experience is like for her. Um, And I have, I'm like partway through both of them and I just, I don't know, I've never finished them because they're both great and I am looking forward to reading them by the lake because that's the best place to read, I think. So that is what uh, two of the nonfiction I'm taking with me. I hope that you have an awesome time at the lake. Thank you. Me too.
And with that, uh, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and you can find Kim at Kim the Dork. And don't forget to recommend the podcast to your friends, nemeses, family, and tag Book Riot. Excellent. And if you are so inclined, please take a few minutes to rate and review the podcast on iTunes so people can find us more easily. Um, And while you're there, you can also subscribe uh, so that you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, And so with that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Four Real Podcast. <laughs>